0: This is In Conversation from Apple News. Today, the most pressing 2024 election questions answered. Hi there, I'm Brian Stelter. For the next month, I'm going to be sitting in for Shumita while she's out on maternity leave. For years, I was a media reporter at The New York Times, and then the anchor of CNN's Reliable Sources. Now, I'm a special correspondent at Vanity Fair. And my beat has always touched on media, politics, and elections. So that's going to be my focus for the next few weeks. For this episode, we are getting answers to some unavoidable questions about the upcoming presidential election. This election year feels really unusual for so many reasons. The two likely nominees are the same two candidates who faced off in the last election. One of those candidates, former President Donald Trump, is facing 91 criminal charges in four separate cases. And both men are the oldest presumptive nominees this country has ever had. Though President Joe Biden, who is a few years older than Trump, seems to be facing a lot more scrutiny on that front. All of these variables are leading to some bizarre questions that we don't typically confront in an election year. For example, can a convicted felon become president of the United States? Is there a Trump or Biden backup plan in place? And what about the usual trappings of campaigns, like debates? Will we even have those? I posed these questions to Susan Glasser, Evan Osnos, and Jane Mayer. All three are staff writers at The New Yorker and co-hosts of the Political Scene podcast. The three of you have all the answers, though. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> we have them here
1: under the table, and we'll take one out at a time. That's the way it's going to work. Like, <laughs> like props.
0: Someone has to have the answers. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> While they might not have all of the answers, these veteran reporters have a lot of them. Susan co-authored a book about Trump's first term. Evan has covered Biden extensively, including a book on him in 2020. And Jane is the New Yorker's chief Washington correspondent and the author of multiple books on politics and history. So I started by asking Jane, what are the rules around electing someone convicted of a crime? If Trump is convicted by at least
2: one jury before Election Day, then what? He can still be president, even if he's a convicted felon.
0: So he can still campaign and he can still take office.
2: I remember looking this up and thinking this can't really be true when I was writing about Trump and then finding, oh my God, you can be a convicted felon and be president. Why? Well, I, I think that probably the founding fathers thought that the voters would have the wisdom not to elect such a person. And so it was kind of outside of their imagination that this would be a problem. But it is potentially a problem that we're all looking at. Actually, a real problem. And And a lot of what pundits are spending a lot of time thinking about is how much would it hurt Trump in the eyes of the voters if he were convicted?
0: Or can I suggest how it might help him?
1: with his fans? I mean, the polls so far actually suggest that it would not help him. Now, there's a huge amount that could be changing, but there is a big difference between what the polls tell us about an indicted president, which of course we all now know has actually helped him, and a convicted president. I mean, if you look at a composite of polls today, what it tells you is that it a conviction of a felony would throw the election to Joe Biden, according to one analysis by about 45 to 43%, meaning it's essentially mm-hmm. a dead heat.
3: Susan, what do you make of that? Well, I think there's a couple of observations there. One is that a lagging indicator, a leading indicator, eight years of experience with Donald Trump suggests to us that while Republicans may say one thing in polls, when confronted with the actual outrage or, you know, shock or blown through norm by Trump, they find a way to justify it. And so what they may tell a pollster right now at the beginning of the election year is absolutely unacceptable. There's no way I would vote for a convicted felon for president by the time they're faced with a choice between the convicted felon who is of their party and the terrible, awful, horrible opponent, they find ways to justify Trump. So it's important for people to take some of those survey results with the caveat of, you know, we'll tell you when we get there. The other (laughs) challenge of course, with Trump and the question of conviction is this motivation of his base. He's been running this campaign of, I'm persecuted, grievance, this is terrible, look at me, I'm a victim of uh, a system that's being weaponized against me. And if that helps to motivate his voters, which has been one of the dynamics in the Republican primaries, in many ways, American politics has abandoned persuasion, right? It's no longer about trying to get the people in the middle. It's no longer about persuading people the rightness of your issues. It's more about motivating your own fervent supporters to get to the polls. So it could be a motivator for some of Trump's base. I do think that's a real factor.
0: I think a lot of Trump critics have watched him quote unquote get away with everything for years, actually for decades, and and they wonder is there actually a world where he could really be behind bars? <laughs> Uh, Jane, let me put this to you. Even if he is convicted, won't he appeal? Yes.
2: I think you can say with great certainty, if he is convicted, he will definitely appeal. And I think if you look at other countries where leaders have been convicted, for the most part, they get things like house arrest. If Mm. you look at Berlusconi, or they have to do sort of public service or things like that. I mean, I think it's unimaginable that he will be behind bars. But really what Trump's doing right now is putting the legitimacy of the court system on trial. So right. that is why it is that you really can't predict as Susan says, you know, whether his voters will see a conviction as striking him out because what he's doing is saying the judges are not fair, the juries are not fair. So this is a test of the rule of law. That's what this year is about. As big as we have seen. Mm-hmm. Don't you think?
1: I, th- you guys? I do. I also think it's easy to forget When we sometimes ask ourselves, my gosh, really? We're a democracy and we're going to be putting a former head of our government on trial? I mean, this guy might go to jail. What kind of banana republic are we becoming? But actually, the truth is, when you look at the history of other democracies, this is something democracies do.
0: This is common, This is common.
1: Israel's done it Someone might even
0: say healthy. It might be healthy. Yes.
1: Uh, Well, in in a way, health is exactly the word, Brian, because it's part of the process of how you clean out a part of your system that is toxic. And this is why France has put a former head of government on trial. This is why Italy has done it. Israel has done it several times. And in some ways, the United States, we're a bit of an anomaly. And if we don't do it, the argument is that we are subjecting ourselves to the risk of losing that
3: democracy. Remember that the reason that Trump can Going back to Brian's first question, why can a convicted ex-president have the chance to return to office? It's because Congress failed in what the Mm. founders of the United States envisioned as the way to hold a rogue president accountable, and that was impeachment. Had the United States Senate convicted Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial— After the events of January 6th and his challenge to overturn the 2020 election, had they convicted him, it would have come along with a provision that would have required him not to be allowed to run for office again. So it was actually the failure of our constitutional system to work as envisioned by the founders that led us to this crisis Mm. in the first place.
0: So he could be under Mar-a-Lago house arrest (laughs) and be inaugurated next January. He may be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars in the Eugene Carroll case, in the civil fraud case. He may be having to hawk buildings in order to pay up. All of this might be happening and he might be inaugurated. Let's talk about the backup plan, though. If not Trump, who could the Republican nominee be? Is there any world where there's going to be a contested convention or some other X factor happens on the Republican side? No.
2: Really? (laughs) You know, really?
1: Well, we've all learned never say never. But no, I mean, the thing
2: about Trump at this point that is kind of astounding is he's completely taken over the Republican Party. And so what does that mean? I mean, the people who are on the Republican National Committee are his people. The people who bring the money into the race and back him. They are his people. He's got the whole machine that is what it takes to get elected, and nobody else has that machine there. Are even some of the richest people in the Republican Party are backing Nikki Haley, and she can't get anywhere because Trump's really, he's taken up all of the oxygen in the room. Right.
0: It's his party, but you're saying people are here about Nikki Haley and Super Tuesday and going all the way to the convention, all that. You're saying that's just hogwash.
3: Look, I think that Nikki Haley exists as a sort of in case of emergency, break glass scenario. But in many ways, what her campaign, especially in its later stages, as she has become the lone remaining opponent to Donald Trump in the Republican primaries and she's become a sharper edged critic of him, what that has clarified, I think, for people is what is the real state of the anti-Trump opposition within the Republican Party? And it's It's not that big. It's, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 percent in most national polls, a little bit more in some states like New Hampshire, where she got 43 percent, a little bit less in many other states, but not a viable amount to challenge him electorally, essentially anywhere. So then the question is, if she has the resources, she could kind of run on as a kind of zombie candidate and hold out until the convention in fact that's definitely a plausible scenario from my perspective in order to be available if there were a kind of a unexpected trump event
1: one thing we have learned is that campaigns do matter remember at the beginning of this process, Ron DeSantis was the guy everybody was all excited about. He turned out to be a pretty miserable candidate. Nikki Haley is by any measure the strongest alternative to Donald Trump on the Republican side. So if there is a, you know, break glass in case of emergency moment because Donald Trump is 77 or he is out of it for some legal reason, she is quite obviously the attractive candidate. And I will point out, I've been talking to voters out in places like Pennsylvania, and I run into Democrats who say, I sure do like that Nikki Haley. So she is a much more powerful entity if there was a scenario.
3: Although I do want to point out just one final twist on this, which is that she has set herself up at this point as a kind of I'm here in case of emergency alternative. However, because she has run against Trump, because she has articulated positions that challenge his America first platform, were Trump not be able to run in the convention, there would be a stampede, in my view, at the convention from the Trumpist forces to pick a more Trump-friendly candidate. Mm, And so that's another factor to recognize, which is that she only captures a certain, you know, one-third of the party. And so she actually would be vulnerable even in an open Who would you
2: see waiting in the wings (laughs) on the Trumpy side?
3: I mean, you know, I guess Don Sr. would say, well, you know, keep it in the family, Don Jr. is ready to go. You know, look we, at him. We know it would She
1: barely answers <laughs> his phone calls at this yeah,
0: point. Yeah,
3: no, that is a fascinating <laughs> dynamic we can get into. But the Trump family uh, rifts in the last few years are, are something to behold.
0: Let's move to Biden. I was amazed by this recent Monmouth University poll that found nearly half of the electorate thinks it's either, either likely or somewhat likely that Biden will be replaced as a Democratic nominee. You know, we know he's running. He's running a re-election campaign. He is absolutely running for re-election. And yet many Americans are in denial about this. What's going on here, Evan?
1: That's a hugely important fact. In fact, if you talk to people inside the Biden campaign, their own polling is telling them that about only about 20 percent of Americans believe at this point that it's going to be a contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And here's the here's the even though that is the most likely 20 percent, 20 percent, 20 percent. And so the reason why that's important is that until you have a moment when the choice is in front of you, until you're standing at the buffet and that's it, it's either the salad or the hamburger. You don't have (laughs) have any real capacity to make an abstract decision. Wow.
3: What if I don't want a salad or a hamburger?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you can stay home, and that's a politically meaningful fact.
0: But on Biden, the idea that there's this—and partly there's a conspiracy theory out there on the right that he's going to be replaced by Michelle Obama. That's not going to happen. She does not want to be president. There's also disinformation. There's also just straight-up denialism, especially among Democrats who don't want Biden to be the nominee. So you put all that together, and you get to the 20 percent, the idea that this is not actually going to happen. Isn't it also just depression about these options? A lot of people don't want to live in a gerontocracy. A lot of people want a do-over. They don't want a redo.
3: I think that's a really important point, Brian. Right now, if you look at Biden's polls, they are consistently more or less the lowest polls that an incumbent president has had at this point going into an election year since the history of modern polling began, even lower by some indicators than where Trump was at this point in 2020. And remember, that's not because Republicans don't like Joe Biden. They already didn't like Joe Biden. It's because Democrats and independents are— unhappy with him as the choice or wary. Many of them are very positive on what the Biden administration has done. They're bullish on Democrats who have outperformed expectations in recent elections. So it does seem to be about Biden himself. And Mm. I think the qualms you know, can be summed up in that that scathing uh, phrase from the, the recent special counsel report. You know, most Americans, Democrats and Republicans, I think even, view Joe Biden as a well-meaning elderly gentleman with perhaps a poor memory. They don't really want that to be the choice. But that's also why you hear, and Evan's been doing great reporting on this, so much frustration from the White House, from Democratic strategists right now. They are like, Wake up people like this is the choice is the choice, like stop living in the fantasy world where Michelle Obama is going to come and, you know, (laughs) like she's not going to be president. Or where
1: Donald Trump is
0: somehow going to be taken off the ballot.
1: That's right. And that is the sort of comforting delusion on the other side, that that's almost certainly not going to happen.
0: But I think it's important to know that. On a recent episode of your all's podcast, you talked about Jane's reporting in the Reagan era about Reagan aides knowing that he was declining, talking behind his back, talking about invoking the 25th Amendment. And, Evan, you say there's no indication that's happening today in the Biden White House.
1: No, that's not the reality within the White House. Look, I I will tell you, and and you'll see this from a a range of different people who have spent time with him, is that this is a town right now in which every reporter, let's be blunt, is looking for a story, an anecdote of Joe Biden not being able to fulfill the job of the presidency. That is the most coveted piece of information in journalism. If it existed— Chances are it would already be out there. What we know is what we see. People see it on television. They see that his communication skills are diminished. They see, as Susan described, that, you know, he is a person who has a harder time getting through his speeches than he did before, partly because his stutter is coming back as he gets older. But what we haven't seen, and nobody has shown it in an incredible way, that this man is not performing the presidency. Mm. And that's an important distinction.
2: And honestly, the people around Reagan, having covered him, did see that he was unable to perform the job. He was going off in the afternoons and watching television in the residence. They worried that he was losing his place, couldn't really read documents. So they actually staged a little test to see whether he was compass mentis. And he passed that test, as far as his aides could tell. But their worries were real. I do think, though, to be clear, that while people are saying that Biden is able to perform well in the presidency inside the White House, they are very concerned about his performance on the campaign. How can he sell himself? How can he get reelected? They're
3: very worried about that. Jane, I'm so glad you brought that up. I do think that's an important point. A couple thoughts. First of all, Jane's amazing scoop in this great book, Landslide, which was about the kind of later years in the Reagan reelection. This was in the second term of Ronald Reagan. And I think a lot of the concerns animating many people in Washington, putting aside the voters or the polls, is not where Joe Biden is today, but where he would be at the end of a second term. Remember, Mm. he's asking us to elect him to office so that he would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. And to be blunt, I don't know many Democrats who don't think that that is a fear and a concern. You know, the White House has made a kind of a furious pushback and a spin about his age right now. And I I actually don't think that's the heart of the problem. And fundamentally, Mm. you're talking about a political situation where they have a liability that they can't do much to address. In fact, his age is not only known he's already the oldest president, but it is a factor that is likely to get worse and not better over time.
1: I, I want to say one thing which I think is important, too, though, is that the standing of a candidate is a combination of what they have done and how they are perceived. And as an industry, the press, we are a little uncomfortable acknowledging our own role in this process. The reality is that we make decisions every day about the proportion of attention that we put on different issues. How many stories do we devote to the subject of his age versus how many stories do we devote to the subject of legislation that was passed? And you can be a very aggressive news organization and you should when it comes to testing this question of is he performing the job is he capable of it how much concern is there are democrats who are actually in a position of influence bailing on him that's a separate question from then also saying are we playing a role that's a real issue look the former public editor of the new york times the other day margaret sullivan said she's concerned that the level of attention on this question of his age is as she put it replaying the hillary's emails experience Experience of 2016.
2: It is really remarkable that there's so little attention to Trump's age. He's only a couple years younger than Biden. Mm-hmm. His father, we know there's a family history of Alzheimer's, and there's no evidence that Trump has Alzheimer's, but it's every bit as much an issue about Trump as it should be about Biden, yet the press doesn't play it that way. Why is that?
0: Because, Jane, as you've written about, there's this pro-Trump propaganda machine in the media. There's nothing like that on the left. There's no version of that for the Democrats to rally around Biden and deny reality about his conditions.
2: Brian, we defer to you on this issue. I mean, nobody knows more about the Fox effect than you do. I mean, and you've really studied this, and it's creating two different ecosystems for news in this country. There's one ecosystem on the right and the other for the mainstream media. And one is sort of full-time pushing Trump all the time and the other is sort of saying on the one hand, on the other hand. So there's (laughs) asymmetry between these two, right? Isn't
0: it? It 100% is. And it affects everything about this election season because every single moment that Biden misspeaks or takes a misstep, it's going to be all over TikTok. It's going to be all over CNN and MSNBC as well as Fox. (laughs) Right. Every day of bad news for Trump is covered up by Fox. Period. It's just that simple.
1: The other day, Tucker Carlson, for instance, was having some long monologue with his guest, Alex Jones, about the fact that, as they put it, Joe Biden is wandering around the house without his clothes on, which is, of course, a a canard. It's lunacy. It's completely made up. And there is some portion of Americans that they are so – to go back to this burnout question, some of them are so sick of politics that they don't want to sit down and read a story about the CHIPS Act, which is actually reviving manufacturing. (laughs) What they want to read is a story about something like that or just hear a clip on it. And that's the real
3: Well, the other challenge of political journalism, though, is almost the exact opposite problem, which is that in Washington, in my sadly, long experience, we tend to overstate the role of ideology and legislation and, you know, the fights that make up the day-to-day life of Washington uh, in the end, especially when it comes to our presidential campaigns in the modern era as a result of television, as a result of how we communicate, as a result of, you know, the increasing powers vested in the imperial presidency. Americans are not going to make their vote up based on the CHIPS Act, no matter how good and worthy that is. We tend to vote on personality. We tend to think contrary Well,
2: I don't know. As we move into this year, I think there are some issues that probably will matter to people that are not just about people's personalities. For one thing, I think the backlash on the subject of abortion against the Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision is something that's very much, we've seen it playing out across the country in kind of amazing ways. In red states, people have come out and said, we do not want to lose access to legal abortions. And where Which, it's on the ballot, and not with candidates. They the didn't ballot. elect
3: Democrats in Kansas, but what they did do is pass a referendum. But you've
2: got one candidate in the, for the presidency who believes in legal access to abortion, and you have another who appointed the Supreme Court justices who took that right away from people. So I think that is an actual issue that matters to people. I think the economy actually matters to people. I think that the Biden White House was surprised and kind of in a bubble and didn't see how much the cost of groceries was really bothering people across this country. I think inflation Mm. really hurt Biden. And then I'm hearing from people that, at least for Democrats, this issue of what's happening in Israel is becoming a complicated issue for young voters and dividing those who are, you know, worried about Palestinian suffering. I mean, I do think these things do matter to people, but they have to be sold and pushed by candidates who articulate them in ways that make people care.
0: Here's my next big blunt question. I think this is for you, Evan. Is there any chance Biden would change his mind and drop out?
1: There is always a chance. However, I will tell you that my reporting really almost astonished me with how this man has no doubts. He believes he's the only one that can beat Donald Trump again. He believes he is the only one. And now, look, you can have and we can have a real conversation about whether he is wrong about that. But what I think is important to point out is he is not sitting there listening to all of the discussion and saying to himself, you know what? I think they might be right. (laughs) He is not. I can say that with total clarity. Hmm. And I think that's interesting to me, that the level of conviction is going to go down in history as either having been an extraordinary case of resisting all of what he would call the chattering class and the talk and everything else, or it will go down in history as having been a terrible miscalculation.
0: So it sounds like There's a lot of worries about the second half of the football game, the second half. What's going to happen? Is he going to be declining? Is he going to be mentally fit for office? But he just wants to make sure he wins at halftime. He just (laughs) wants to make sure he has more points on the board to beat Trump at halftime and to have a second term. I bring that up to ask, what is the likelihood of Kamala Harris being president in the next four years? Again, an unknowable But it's a higher percentage than it usually is for a vice president.
1: It is. And I think part of the challenge for her is that when you talk to people who spend all day long in focus groups with voters, they will tell you that one of the most consistent answers is – Who is Kamala Harris? She's invisible to us. And that's a whole question about, you know, the degree to which the public and the press has paid attention to the substance of her work, not the personality, not the sort of mistakes that she's made in speeches. But is she doing the work of the job? That's a whole question. Mm. Uh, Look, I I actually think, though, that what this comes down to is that— The Democrats are going to be saying to people in November that, yes, you may be worried about Joe Biden at the age of 86, which is way later than anybody should ever have been president, according to the founders. And yet we know what Donald Trump is right now. We know what he is right now. He is a man who is possessed by his own self-pitying, self-narrative, who is possessed by the fantasy, the hallucination that he won the 2020 election. And that is your choice, my dear voter. That's basically what Democrats are going to say. And they're going to say—
0: They're going to use the word dictator a
1: lot. He uses it himself. I mean, the other thing is they're also going to say—and this is really important— Take a look at your life, American. Today, right now, violent crime is at a near 50-year low. The stock market has broken records over and over in the last few weeks. Unemployment is below 3%. All of these are the kinds of indicators that history tells us really do end up helping an incumbent president in the moment of the key decision. But the thing that is most important of all is whether or not those people those very few people by some estimates about 5.5 million people in the swing states that those are the people whether they come out to vote or not because this thing i mean you could boil this whole conversation down to one line which is this thing right now is a dead heat it is a tie and if democrats stay home it's probably going to go to donald trump
2: you know we should we mention one other dynamic in this race which is that trump has to win if he can get himself out of legal jeopardy, He has more of a motive to run than almost anybody who's ever run for president before. Because if he can take over the Justice Department, which he would be able to do in a second term, he can then get out from under these prosecutions. Maybe not the state ones, but he can certainly get out of the federal ones. So this is really, truly, it's not just an election. This is also his get-out-of-jail-free card. Mm. And that's one of the things that people have to decide. Do you want to help him? Escape accountability legally, because that's what this election is also about.
0: Next blunt question, then. If it's Biden versus Trump, why do we not have a third-party contender who's coming in and running away with the race and running away with the presidency?
3: Unfortunately, we do have third party contenders, but they are not viable candidates for the presidency. They are spoilers or potential spoilers. And
0: why? Why is RFK not being taken more seriously, for
3: example? Well, first of all, he espouses views that I think are, you know, dangerous, ignorant, uninformed, and untrue. But more other important than that. But other than that, I look, we have a, a history, a recent history of third party spoilers as opposed to third party viable candidates. If it weren't for Ralph Nader's third-party campaign in Florida in 2000, which came down to literally about 500 votes in Florida. And Ralph Nader essentially was the decisive factor in that. In 2016, Jill Stein's candidacy arguably was the decisive factor in Donald Trump's victory. So I take very seriously the possibility of these various—and there's not just RFK Jr., but various third-party candidates and potential candidates who actually could decide the outcome of this race.
1: Mm. You know what's fascinating? If you go back all the way to the history of the Civil War, basically third-party candidates tend to hurt the incumbent because their whole basis for being in the race is to say, I know you don't like these options, so consider me. And if you look at it, the number of people that vote for third-party candidates changes wildly from election to election depending on how much people are aware of how much the history tells us that they can be spoilers. Take, for example, in 1992, Ross Perot running against the incumbent, George H.W. Bush, got 19% 19% of the vote by saying that Bush hadn't done enough to get jobs. Remember, he talked about the giant sucking sound and so on. In 2016, Susan just mentioned absolutely right, the third-party candidates got a total of about 5% of the vote in the battleground states. But in 2020, when people understood that this was an absolute dead heat and that it would come down to every single vote, third-party candidates only got about 1.5% of the vote. So it matters tremendously how much people understand what the stakes are and how close it is.
0: So we have Describe so many X factors here, age, health of the candidates, uh, all these issues, um, third party candidates. Let's say it is Biden and Trump in the fall. Here's another X factor. Will they debate? Because I'm thinking, no, there's not going to be general election debates.
2: It's going to be a campaign like none we've seen. No debate. I would bet on that.
0: And is that mostly because Trump doesn't want to do it or Biden doesn't want to do it?
2: You know, the truth is, I think neither of them wants to do
3: it. Um,
0: (laughs) So they'll blame the other guy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I would be shocked if there's a debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden this fall. I
0: think that's so sad. So disappointing.
3: Remember that Donald Trump has already blown up that norm in the Republican primaries this year. So it's not even a theoretical discussion in the sense that it's the first time you had a situation where the Republican frontrunner essentially flouted even the need to appear in front of Republican voters in order to lock up the nomination. So he's already established that precedent. And, you know, if you're Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and imagine that there already has been one of these trials taking place, you have an easy out, too, because you say, well, I'm not going to debate a felon. Mm. You know, he's not worthy to sit in the office of president of the United States.
2: I'm, I'm with you, Brian. I think it's an incredible loss for voters. I mean, this is, a debate is how you get to see the clash of ideas. And we've had, in this country, a history of phenomenal debates, you know, Lincoln and Douglas and going back to, you know, Nixon and JFK. I mean, these things really are important for elections, and it's kind of a travesty that it's not likely to happen this year. Also, it puts so much pressure on the press then. Mm-hmm. We have to be the ones who really draw out their differences and get beneath the surface and really hold them to account for their views because mm. they're not going to do it to each other this way.
0: If Biden is reelected, won't he come under instant pressure to pardon Donald Trump?
1: I don't think he's. I think
3: pardon. he's already said, in fact, that uh, he wouldn't do that. He's already think, said that yeah, publicly.
1: You know, Biden believes that the process of accountability, of punishing people for crimes committed, is essential to a functioning democracy. And I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that he would actually want to pardon Donald Trump.
0: Isn't there then reason to believe we're going to see street protests and possible violence on uh, January 6th?
1: I think that's very possible. I can tell you that Joe Biden is absolutely sure. That no matter what happens, Donald Trump is not going to accept a loss in 2024. He believes that the man is incapable of doing it, that it is such an injury to his own self mythology that he wouldn't do it. And so Biden is preparing, frankly, for the prospect that Donald Trump will never concede a loss and that he will do whatever he can, whatever he can to try to prevent that.
0: This has suddenly turned quite dark, Evan.
1: I I don't think that you could look at the last few years without having an analysis like that. And Biden has spent a lot of time, I think this is something that's easy to miss from the outside, Biden spent a lot of time thinking about Donald Trump. Imagine yourself in Joe Biden's shoes. This is a man who you beat once, who tried to steal the election, not just from America, but from you. And now he's going to try to do it again? Imagine what that does to you.
2: I, I think people also who are close to the criminal justice system really worry that there may be violence surrounding these courthouse trials of, of Trump as well if he is convicted. And there's, a, there's already a lot of worry. There have been threats to the judges. Witnesses are in a threatened position. There's a lot of a sort of a sense that people are on edge about violence surrounding this election.
0: I've asked a lot of questions, but I'd like to know if there's any I'm missing. What are the most pressing questions that each of you have about this election season?
2: I remember I did an interview with John Meacham in which the question came up, if Trump were convicted and then elected, can he pardon himself? And the answer is apparently yes. <laughs> and according to the historian John Meacham, he he looked at it and he sort of thought, hey, this is the sort of the ultimate kind of thing that Trump would do, you know, just pardon himself.
0: Right. That is a very big question. And we're going to get into Trump's trials in more detail next week on the show. For now, Jane, Evan, Susan, thank you so much for bringing the New Yorker's political scene to us.
2: Thanks, Brian. So good to be with you. Thank you, Brian.
1: That was terrific. Thanks, Brian.
0: You can listen to The Political Scene on Apple Podcasts. We'll include a link for you on our show notes page.